creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are back. We are back after... Uh... We had a little bit of a break, man, because uh, because of uh, holidays and all that kind of stuff. I think, right, Greg? But we back. We back. I think we got to be frank about why we haven't been on. It's because we're both on the road, and sometimes <laughs> doing this is just way too challenging when you're going bus to plane to hotel and doing that every day. So we're here. It's, we we here, y'all. It's, it's getting rough. We, you know, but uh, yeah, me and Greg are both uh, traveling uh, a lot these days but hey we made it this week and we got a very very special guest but actually we've been begging this cat to come on the show for almost three years and i don't know what greg did but uh he must have promised something special but here we got him tonight so i'm excited yeah i'm really excited to have the the fantastic evan christopher joining us this evening uh, evan is one of the most in demand and knowledgeable musicians that i've ever met and you know also he's a clarinet player that I've looked up to for a big part of my life. And I definitely am very grateful for Evan because he's opened up a lot of doors uh, in my mind and also professionally for me. So I'm really excited to get have an opportunity to chat with Evan about New Orleans clarinet and uh, the music business and, and how to you know have a sustained and long career in the arts. And I'm sure Evan's going to have a lot to say on this, but Evan, I know Evan's always going to keep it real. So I'm really excited. <laughs> Yeah. All right, y'all. Without further ado, why don't we welcome the one and only Evan Christopher to the Working Artist Project? What up, Evan? Jerry and Greg, so good to see you guys. Did I did I, did I hear you say that you're actually on the road? Wow. I I just got home today. Oh, congratulations! Greg. I don't even know where Greg is. I'm 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 trying to move my camp my angle here so you can see my beautiful display of of. Of, of clarinets behind me, but I, I've got this beautiful display case that I created for my clarinets that I don't use anymore. Um, um, but I guess you can't really see that. Oh, well. <laughs> you're the most that. important part. The clarinets always come second to the, the musician, you know, and well, you're a true musician. So. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> it's been quite a while. And Evan, we're so grateful that you, uh, you joined us tonight. And uh, Evan, for those of you who don't know, Evan is actually currently residing in New York City these days. And uh, how has New York been treating you the last couple of years? You know what? It's really quiet here. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's how you feel? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't get out much. Oh, okay. um, no, it's uh, it's been beautiful. Um, New Orleans, um, you know, I moved there the first time in 1994. So it was on and off for half of my life. Um, and so um, well, more than half, well, it was somewhere around there. And to be here in New York um, is really, uh, it's a, a dream come, tr come true, except that um, I have the, I have the, the, the benefit of actually not being here under any pressure to try to gig. I'm here because my daughter got accepted into a really cool school. So, <laughs> so that's, that's how we ended up in New York. And um, there's, there, there've been opportunities uh, for, for, um, uh, for April um, and then for Elena to be in school. It's been, it's been terrific. So, um, you know, uh, you're talking to a very proud Mr. Mom 
and uh, I'm working a little bit, but for the most part, I think the most, the best, the the reason that I'm able to enjoy New York so much is because I'm I'm really not having to to hit the pavement too much. I love that, man. You know, haven't been here for ten years, and and I, you know, my I just had a kid just turned two, so I'm I'm going in slow motion these days too, just because I think it's uh it's more important for me to be here than it is for me to be, you know wherever at this stage in my life man so i i get it i'm uh yeah round two i'm in the house most of the time if i'm not playing i'm in the house that's that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how my life <laughs> no i mean i've been i've been checking out i've been checking out your posts and you're and you're you know you're you're real you're real about it too um you know there's a lot of challenges with that balance um of of family life with the with the music life and uh i i love the way i love the way you use social media to explore that and and um you know solicit um advice and to uh just kind of it's also just a, a window into um musicians lives when they share stuff like that that they might not be considering i think that's cool so yeah absolutely yeah I'm, I, I ain't going to do that, but I mean, I don't know I'm but I'm glad you're doing it. We got two dads in the house and I'm still currently uh, childless. So I don't, I, I cannot relate to your experiences, but I think it's really interesting too, because a lot of times, you know, as musicians, we just see cats on stage playing and, and doing their thing, but we, we all have lives that go far beyond what we just do on stage. And I think it's, it's really important to highlight that. What, what has changed most in your life now that you are a father? Um, you know, here's the, the interesting thing. Um, the thing that's changed the most is, is that, um, you know, I, I think I kind of describe myself as being semi-professional, not quite amateur. And I think the distinction is, is that, is that in the early part of my career, um, and maybe people can relate to this, maybe you can, Greg, it's, it's you, everything is part of, everything is part of the experience. All the travel is part of the experience. Um, you're enjoying all aspects of it. Um, and you know, when someone calls you for a gig, you just kind of, it's, it's like uh, having, having that be your 24 hour thing is cool. What happens when you start to have, um, a, a kid and other priorities or different priorities is that, is that no longer do you feel like you, you're being, you know, you might be getting a good fee for a concert, but all of a sudden, if it involves three or four days of your life, the math becomes very different. When you're early in your career, those three, four days of your life, it's all part of the package. You know, what happens is, is the shift is, is that, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, you know, now, now I'm, now I'm basically losing four days of my other life to, uh, to weeple around on stage for a couple hours. And so it changes. Yeah. I think that's the biggest, that's the kind of the biggest difference. Yeah, right. That that makes sense. Sense. Everything has to be perfect for me. And I'm sure for, for most people, well, not most, but some musicians to leave home after the stakes are higher. You know what I'm saying? But, right. but some people also love music more than anything else, whether they have a family or not. You know, and I think you we see that more often than not uh, in the arts, where the art takes precedent over everything. 
I mean, you know, I mean, I think the romantic way to think of it is, oh, wow, you know, my life is so much richer and it, it, it really informs my music more, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I think that's great if it if it does that, if it if it recalibrates your your aesthetic sensibilities as well as just your personal priorities. But I, I think that, you know, I mean, for me, that that's not really what happened. What really happened is that all of a sudden I was. I was freer in a way to make music the way I wanted to because the stakes were so much lower compared to the high stakes of parenting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's such an important thing to keep in context too, is I know, you know, just for me personally, I put so much pressure on, you know, music and in the lifestyle that surrounds that. But again, you said the high stakes of parenting and when it comes down to it, parenting is much more high stakes than being a musician in so many ways and just requires so much more energy and um you know it's also there's a certain level of seriousness that goes to parenting that you know musicians you know that is that is that is no that is no joke um yeah i mean i think um you know i think my advice to musicians who are thinking of starting a family or who are in it already and are finding it a challenge to balance the two things, I think um, I, I can't advocate more strongly, you know, get your priorities straight. Um, you know, this kid is, this kid's depending, is depending on you. And, and quite frankly, you know, you might, you know, if you're really worried about the music side of it, you just might actually be overestimating you know what that really means. <laughs> <laughs> I want to switch switch gears here for a second and, and talk about just your love for New Orleans music and how that came about. You know, being being from California and then you know it's it seems like a, a far fetched thing. You know what was interesting is that is it took me it took. It wasn't until I got to New Orleans that I really started to figure out, you know, the significance of New Orleans. You know, you 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 come up you come up with an interest in the clarinet and the music um, of clarinet players in the arena of jazz, and you discover quickly that that clarinet is actually, you know, you have to go back to the earlier aspects of the tradition to really figure out, you know, what's special about the instrument. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean going all the way back to New Orleans, but it means going back to certain players who were from New Orleans. Um, Omer Simeon, who played with Jelly Roll Morton, recorded with Jelly Roll Morton, his favorite clarinet player, and Barney Bigard, who spent, you know, over a decade with Duke Ellington, and then over a decade with Louis Armstrong, um, uh, uh, Jimmy Noon, who, you know, had, the, had a band in Chicago, and, um, you know, uh, Alcide Nunez, who, you know, was really one of the first heavy clarinet improvisers and all these cats were from New Orleans, but they didn't really make their mark until they left. So, so being in California, you don't really understand the significance of New Orleans, or at least I didn't until I actually got there and started to breathe the air and, and, you know, play the jobs that they were, you know, kind of the same types of jobs they were doing, kind of walk in the, their footsteps and then start to do some rather academic research about their lives and about what the city was like in the last uh, in the last, uh, you know, a little over 100 years, mm -hmm. um, and that was that was when it really started to open up for me. Um, before that, 
you know, everybody's from somewhere. Oh, yeah, Louis Armstrong is from, from New Orleans. Sidney Bechet is from New Orleans. But you don't really actually start to piece together what that, how that affected their, um, their, their creative output and the trajectory of their music careers and uh, on, on so many different levels. And that was, a, that was a beautiful thing. Most of all, I was just glad. I was, I was in my early 20s. I was just glad to be in a city where there was young people playing the same music and playing the same music I was kind of in which I was interested. That was, that was very special. Um, to have, you know, to be, to be sitting around, um, you know, uh, a restaurant. Um, I can think of one specific example where the Bluebird on magazine, there's just a bunch of cats close to my age sitting around and, oh, dude, you got the new Louis box set. Oh, you slob. You know, it's just like, it was really hip because in California, it wasn't like that. The people who were interested in the older music were older musicians. The scene wasn't really that interesting. And the, and the jobs were, um, you know, it was sort of, um, the, the music was used for in kind of a novelty way. So, you you know, you, you could be, you know, you, you could get to the gig and somebody would have put you in a costume before you went on stage. And it wasn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't have the same sense that, that there was um, a connection to the cultural life of the, of, 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 of people. You just felt like you were just kind of, it was just a gig. Mm. Um, and in New Orleans, it was just, it was a combination of, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a gig, but you just feel that much more, you feel on many situations, you feel so much more connected to the, to the, um, um, uh, to, to the, to the, to the music and dance that was the, that's been the lifeblood of the city for since its inception. Mm. Something that I think is extremely interesting about you too, is like, I, I truly believe you are probably one of the most complete embodiments of like New Orleans clarinet playing in uh, modern to a traditional style. And you, you could play everything. Um, Coming from you, that means a lot. Greg. Oh, come on, come on, man. <laughs> no, but what, what was there something that as, as you were growing up in California, making the decision to move to New Orleans and then living in New Orleans for a couple of years, was, were you surprised by anything in terms of what you thought New Orleans was? And then moving to New Orleans and realizing what New Orleans is—is is there was there any kind of revelation there? Um, I don't know about revelations, but I think fundamentally, uh, fundamentally, my love and passion for all these earlier New Orleans clarinet players. I think the, the the quickest thing that I learned was that nobody actually wanted me to play like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was very significant. Um, if, if I wanted to be me and there were aspects of those players in me, that was cool, but nobody was requiring me to come to, you know, um, nobody was hiring me to sound like Johnny Dodds. Nobody was hiring me to sound like George Lewis. Nobody was hiring. They, they, they in fact, they actually looked at me kind of funny if I were trying to go that way and be like, okay, hmm. well, that's, you know, um, and that was interesting. That was very, that was very interesting. Um, Cause I thought, Oh, here I am in New Orleans. Wow. Wait, no, all, all this, all this, all this um, authenticity that I've been trying to cultivate. Yeah. Here we go. It's going to, it's going to, it's nobody gave a shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that they didn't care, but, but it, it only with cats that really knew, did it mean something? I think, I think um, there was almost a, a stigma attached uh, attached to trying to play that way, and you know some of the some of the more popular 
busking bands in New Orleans that play that way, you know, you constantly, you constantly talk to people and they kind of, you know, they don't really roll their eyes, but they, they, they do recognize that that's, that's, you know, they may be in New Orleans and they may be playing music that New Orleans musicians made once they left New Orleans. And it may, you know, it has some relationship, but it's not really our music because the music and the tradition evolved and the, and the, and that was, that was, that was very clear to me, especially when I started experimenting with some of the brass band stuff, it was very clear, you know, how much the music for the people of New Orleans had evolved beyond that, um, that tradition or how the tradition continued to embrace um, the, the more contemporary music of the day that was the that was the interesting thing to reframe tradition as something that's always evolving mm-hmm. and to reframe to reframe what is traditional as not being this thing from 100 years ago that was that was very interesting you no, told I, me once I mean, the tradition is eternally modern and that yeah. has, i've never forgotten that <laughs> one one thing yeah, i noticed yeah. did know. i i said that yeah you said oh, that's, that that's, that's deep, man. <laughs> One thing that I noticed when I moved to New Orleans. I must have stolen that from Winton. I don't know. I, 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 no, that's sounds like something he would say. No, that's 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 Evan, man. It's still it. New Orleans is a place that likes originality. And so it like does, indeed. it it kind of it demands it. And and in my experience, it is the only place. The only music scene that demands originality, like mm-hmm. you gotta Absolutely. be you from day one. They don't give a fuck Absolutely. about the shit you transcribe. Who cares? That's what, right. That's, who that's are very you? True. You know. That's very true. That's you don't get a, a, a Uncle Lydell nowhere mm-hmm. else but New Orleans. You, you don't get a Simon mm-hmm. Lott nowhere else. <laughs> like there's mm-hmm. no room for that kind of originality. The the musicians, the musicians that make their mark in the city and in from and in the city and from the city are the ones that, that figured out how to have their own thing. Absolutely. There's no question about that. Um, and, uh, and there are plenty of musicians that could make a very good living without having that, um, you know, the, the bar is low enough. Um, but, but, uh, uh, but yeah, the, 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 the point in your career where, where you get people telling you that they heard you on a radio station and knew it was you, yeah. that's when you know you're on the right track. That's when you start to feel like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Mm. And um, that's when you, you know, you, you start to, you know, and that, I think, I think very few compliments have, have kind of have fed my, have, have uh, fed my drive more than, more than statements like that. Or, um, you know, because clarinet players, you know, Greg, we constantly hear, oh, I didn't know the clarinet could sound like that. You hear that sometimes you hear, I never liked the clarinet. You you hear that until, you know, until, and you get that, but, but that's, you know, those are all kind of, kind of backhanded, left-handed compliments. But, but when they start to say, I was, I was in Paris on vacation and our rent a car and the radio came on and, and they, and they, there was this clarinet and I knew it was you. And then they announced it and I was right. And they're very proud of themselves that they recognized you. But I mean, at the same time, you're very proud of yourself that you're recognizable. So, um, 
Uh, and that's and that's very true. And I think that that also goes into the realm of composition and of of band leading and projects. I mean, the, the, you know, the sound you cultivate starts with your own identity, but it also has to transcend that to 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 go into um, to the realms of uh, of original music and and of of, of ensembles that um, where your where your artistic vision can be communicated um, by an ensemble. Wow. Wow. Um, you mentioned something earlier. You said that the music was started in New Orleans and again, evolved through its transition, uh, you know, to different cities like New York, Chicago, and, and around the world, ultimately. Um, how, I, I know you, you've done, you've lived in different places. You've lived in Paris for a while and now you're living in New York. What, how has leaving the city further informed your musicianship and maybe helped cultivate a stronger connection with new orleans or like how has leaving new orleans helped i've left many times by the way i mean i've left i left many times i mean i got to new orleans in 94 um if I got, here's how i got there i was actually touring with a singer songwriter from southern california and we played tipitinas before they had air conditioning it was it was june, late june or july it was hot it was quite hot uh, the band wore match suits and you know there was like some industrial fan that was how they cooled it and i fell in love with the place hmm. but by 96 i accepted a full-time job in san antonio for almost for, uh, for a little over two and a half years and then i didn't come back again until 2000 and then i left again in 2005 um you know the city was uninhabitable and i, I accepted a residency in paris and then i didn't come back again until 2008 hmm. and that period it comes to comes closer to helping me answer your question. When I came back in 2008, being away helped me kind of understand something that was really essential to to having New Orleans mean something to my personal identity and for me to be able to communicate that. And that was that um, that the currency of of being in this place that is the epicenter of 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 African American culture or African culture in the United States, however you want to think about it. You know, this, this city, ground zero, from Congo Square all the way up to the to the present day, the currency of that won't really be understood unless, you know, as long as as long as the music is 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 marketed in a way that that doesn't understand. The the, the 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 ethnic ramifications of what it means to be playing New Orleans music, whatever the style, whatever the genre, doesn't matter. What you know to be to be having the you know having the influence of New Orleans in your music doesn't mean anything if you're actually calling it something else. If you're using the same marketing terms that the industry uses, if you use the word jazz, all of a sudden it's no longer New Orleans music. It's just New Orleans music ends up being a type of jazz, which is backwards. And that's what I realized. And I became very aggressive when I got back in 2008 about trying to move the dial on that and, and let people understand that even in the most traditional form, what we're dealing with in traditional New Orleans music is that, is that this is, in a way, an ethnic music and needs to be appreciated that way. And needs to be taught that way. And your teacher, Alvin, Bat uh, Alvin Batiste, 
um, felt that way on some level. Um, the most significant musicians that are, are you know, uh, really representing the city feel that way. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I, I, I started doing more with education and I started doing more with um, framing my own um, career and tr trying to do my best to create opportunities for New Orleans musicians that, that just weren't, in my opinion, just weren't, weren't leaving town enough <laughs> to let people know what, 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 you know, what the hell's going on. Um, um, so that, that was something that being away from New Orleans taught me was basically that people don't look at it the way that, that people don't, people don't appreciate the city the way it, 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 uh, it deserves to be appreciated. That's, that's, that's my short answer. <laughs> now, you know, in America, for whatever reason, uh, when it comes to acknowledging black culture, it's like, we'll do anything not to acknowledge it. And, and that's what happens in our music. And so when you start giving it different names, like you get, you say, okay, this is jazz. And then it got nothing to do with New Orleans. Now we no longer have to acknowledge Congo Square. We no longer have to acknowledge uh, the Haitian tradition and anything that came from black culture. And, and that tradition is carried on today through the university. Because the, when you first put jazz in the schools, you called it lab band, which is racist. Because it, and you, you go to school, they don't teach you nothing about black culture. And then you got these motherfuckers graduated school who don't even know shit about black culture, don't listen to nothing, no black music. And, and they think that they playing jazz and they playing some bullshit, some Abrasol bullshit. You know what I'm saying? There is no way. You know, Darian, <laughs> you, can find, you, can find, you can find no shortage of literature that actually is starting to kind of grapple with how you, how you use the, the academic structure to, to teach music that was from an oral tradition exactly um to teach music that is for the community to teach music that evolved to serve the needs of the community you, you know that's that's the you know the the academic setting is is completely separate from that and you know sadly i think even in new orleans there's a separation there as well some musicians start to figure it out the same way that Miles Davis figured out, you know, when he was at Juilliard where he needed to be, right? I mean, musicians figure out their own thing, but but I, I think when cats start to um, feel a, a bit um, enslaved, pun intended, or um, you know, I, I, I mean that in a way to the um, the whims of the music industry. Uh, I think I think it's a it's a real trap, and I think musicians would do themselves a, a huge favor by just turning their back on all of that mm. and just following their following their own um, you know following their own their own their own passion. Um, I forget who it was that was talking about you know the fact that I think it might have been Taj Mahal. Like actually, you know. Popular music is for, you know, this huge percent of the population, but the people that hear me don't give a shit about any of that. So I'm pretty content to be making music for the people who, who are coming for me. It's a bit of that kind of long tail, long tail uh, kind of, um, um, you know, economic model. But I, I think, I think there's something, there's something to that. And I think 
realizing that these ethnic musics are actually also in a way kind of niche, uh, I think it's it can be turned to your advantage. And I, I encourage people to, to do that more. Now, if you're not in New Orleans or you've never been in New Orleans, I mean, you know, but that's where your passion is and that's where that's where you want to speak from. Well, you, you know, you've got you've got some challenges. Won't lie. Um, there are challenges that are pretty easy to resolve because you don't need a passport to get to New Orleans. You know, I, New York cats are funny, right? They're like, oh, New Orleans. I've always wanted to go there. Like, like, <laughs> like it's that like it's, you know, really far away. Oh, I don't know why I've never been there. Yeah, I don't know why you've never been there either. <laughs> um, but they, you know, they get they're kind of funny about it. Oh, I gotta get me some of that New Orleans thing. It's like, oh well, okay. Um, and I, I always thought that was very, I was out there very funny conversations. But um, but you know, at least at least they recognize on some level, even if it's just kind of lip service, that they they know that there's something there that they're they're missing. Um, uh, so uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's it's valuable, and I, I'm you know it's a it's a, it's kind of tragic that it's getting harder to actually make your pilgrimage to the city and 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 find um, find those uh, and find those connections. But be that as it may, you still got to try to make those connections. Um, no matter what type of music you want to do, you've got to you've got to figure out a way to be in that community before you can start you know pretending that you are in that community. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. How this this is um, being from New Orleans. I, again, I, I grew up around a lot of what you're saying that the music the music was for the community and and how do we reconcile the fact that we also live in like a capitalistic culture where as musicians we're not only you know creatives making music and following our passion, following our soul, and doing you know things in the community setting, but how do we Trans, translate in that to the the economic model and realities that we live in while still being authentic to the root I, of our art? That's a very tough question. I don't know the answer. I would say, I would say three things come to mind right away. Um, one, nobody owes you a living mm. in music. Um, you know, you could be, it don't, doesn't matter how creative our creative you are if you start to if you start to produce and and be shaking your fist at the sky saying why isn't anybody you know giving me uh, uh, affording me a, a living to continue doing this well i mean i think i i, I think you're on the wrong track hmm. um the second thing is that uh i think it comes down to a question of um I think there's a lot of pressure. Musicians put a lot of pressure on themselves to be making a living in music. And I think that's completely unnecessary. I'm living proof of that. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not an amateur. Maybe I'm semi-professional. Um, you know, there's nothing stopping me from thinking about music every day. There's nothing stopping me from, from making music every day. There's nothing stopping me from composing a little bit every night. There's nothing stopping me from continuing to be a musician, but I don't necessarily feel like less of a musician just because I'm not out there playing shitty gigs. Mm. Um, I don't feel like less of a musician because I'm not getting on an airplane and being away from my family. 
right? And I think when cats put pressure on themselves to be like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm working so hard, but I don't, but I'm not, I don't have the gigs and I'm not getting the money. I think you just have to separate those two things entirely. Take the money off the table is my answer to your question. Take the money off the table. It's a stupid way to measure your, your value. It's a stupid way to measure your, your level of mastery in the craft. You may be getting paid to make music. That does not make you a master of the craft. Mm -hmm. Your standards make you, your standards are what you, you measure, how you measure where you are with your music. I know, I know plenty of people that don't know an, a, an ounce of, of harmony. I know people that don't know how to play in tune. I know people that don't know how to sing in tune. And they may have great careers, careers in the music industry, but to me, it don't mean a thing. Um, and I think taking money off the table is a big part of that. You know, creating, you know, letting, letting your, letting the ancestors create the standards that you live by. Um, not whether, not whether you had X number of gigs per week or that, you know, somebody paid you to do what you're doing. I think the answer to the question is you got to take the money off the table and you have to, you have to be, you have to be more real about what it means to be a professional. And being an amateur, you know, for for a long time, amateur just meant you love you love the music. That's what the word means. The etymology of amateur just means you 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 love it. Eventually, it had a connotation of you didn't take it seriously, or that you didn't uh, you didn't aspire to ex, you know to be uh, uh, to a level of mastery. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we all know plenty of musicians who perform or or create at a very high level in their craft and they've just chosen they've just chosen a lifestyle that doesn't allow that to to be how they measure their you know their status yeah I, you, yeah it's interesting man. all that's interesting you know i would say too <laughs> <laughs> dude what? that's so deep i love it i mean what? look all the, all the olympians are amateurs <laughs> and right right sports is that's a very interesting thing right you know they're 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 technically they're doing it for the love of it but but that that's a that's a very high level that they're that they're trying to that, you know their right level of their craft is very very high and i think musicians could do themselves a favor by not be kind of deluded by the fact that someone's actually paying them to do whatever it is they're doing, they need to be like, well, okay, yeah, but I, actually I'm kind of skating on those changes or I'm, I'm, or actually, yeah, I can't, I can't play in time to save my life or whatever it is, whatever it is their deficiencies are, they can't, they can't lose sight. They can't lose sight of those deficiencies by saying, oh, well, someone's paying me. Um, and by the other side of it, you can't say, wow, at the level I'm, I'm, I'm at, I should be able to, I should, I should not have to, I, I should not have to work a, a um, you know, a day a, 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 a gig or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, that's that's up to you. It depends on what it depends on what what lifestyle you want to have for yourself. So, in terms of it being a, a you know, the thing about the thing about capitalism and the arts that they don't they don't quite go together because because two two things. I mean, uh, the quality is not quite as objective it's rather subjective it's up to the you know um and then the second thing is is that is that is that we just don't uh, you know as a as a as a country i mean 
you know, there's huge swaths of this nation that I don't have any interest in going to because they're they're they equate culture with 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 going to church on Sunday and watching sports and and and, and NASCAR. I, I just I'm I'm not interested in getting on a plane. You can come here to the capital of the fucking world. You can come to New York City and maybe I'll be playing somewhere, but I'm not gonna go where where you are and try to convince you that what I do matters. <laughs> come on. So you're not I'm sorry. Was that was that was that was that mean? No, hey, am, I offend, am I offending? Am I offending people? Yes, but this is your truth. <laughs> <laughs> Man, why don't we? Why don't we take a moment now and let's? Uh, let's I feel let's, like I struck a nerve. You guys might. You guys might really be into NASCAR. And I apologize. Hey man, I'm, I love I'm from NASCAR. I'm from <laughs> country dies. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a little NASCAR here and there, baby. You know. What I'm saying? <laughs> Evan, let's let's listen to one of these tracks, man. And uh, let's see, what about balling? I can freaking play it. The heck? We should just shorten the name. Just say balling. Balling. Yeah. This is called balling. All doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's a tune from like 1912 called Ball in the Jack. Yeah, balling. Yeah, you go Ball in the Jack, which is we call it balling, man. Is that from? That's not from record. That was just from a gig at Snug Harbor in New Orleans. Oh, that was oh, just that was just that was just me throwing down with Shannon Powell and, um, and, and some other cats. And um, uh, it you know it came out. It, it, I don't remember how how we captured it, but it came out well enough. Um, I'd used it. I'd used it uh, to um, uh, as a an ensemble example for for a grant. Um, that I applied to, and there's something about it that seemed to capture people's imagination. So I thought I'd share it with y'all, but it's not from an album. So. Well, you need to put that out live. This balling the balling jack balling the jack is a is a is an old pop tune from 1913, and um and I I think I wanted to share that with you because that's kind of because it kind of represents you know what I do. I'll, you know, I take tunes that are over 100 years old and just try to you know let people. You know, let people, you know, 
have the question mark about whether it was written yesterday or, you know, just I want to kind of blur those lines. The well, tradition is eternally modern. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I have done you and I have done some things. I remember Greg, Greg, Greg. You, we, you and I did a concert where we played. Um, we were kind of doing a mix of um, uh, Bechet and Batiste. Yeah. And we we did one tune. I can't remember what what it was exactly, but we we played it in a way that we had the audience split 50-50 about whether it was a composition by Bechet or a composition by Allen. We had them split down the middle because of the way we approached it. Um, and, and I remember uh, you put one of those Harrow Bad pieces. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Venetian, Venetian, Venetian Skies. Sky, Venetian yeah. Skies. And we pl- I played it. I, I think I borrowed your soprano and I cranked on a mouthpiece and tried to, <laughs> you know, and I, and I played it so much like Cine Bechet that people were like, oh, well, that must be a Bechet tune. And then we got into some other things like, well, maybe it's an Alvin Batiste tune. But I, I love, I love the, I love that concert we did that blurred those, that blurred those distinctions. Um, and, and, and the only thing, the, the, the thread that, that held it together was New Orleans. Well, what yeah. what is the distinction between like something like what what makes something traditional and what makes something modern? Like what is that? How do you play you this know, thing to I, to me? To me, Greg, it's about vocabulary. There's different. There's there's different. There's different things. There's vocabulary. Um, you know, um, on that per- that particular example, it's a minor tune. And um, the use of the minor seven and and not the leading tone sends it forward into a period where the music was more was more coming out of um, um, a modal a, a modal texture, not to get too technical. But whereas the you know the tonicization of the of the you know using the sixes and the nine, yeah, the, it makes it more traditional in the sense that it's obeying these 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 rules of of um, of of harmony that started with Bach. And I think that's the, those are the kind of areas where it starts to become more modern or traditional. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to the rhythms, uh, the, the, the presence of the, the backbeat, you know, constitutes some aspect of the tradition, but what surrounds that rhythmically or polyrhythmically what surrounds that can take it forward um and start to incorporate some vocabulary that's not uh, it's not as um that doesn't that doesn't mark it as being something distinctly you know from a certain period of the tradition what do you, what do you what do you think's next like where what's happening for you uh in the future, the next five. Man, years. this is it for me. This is it for me. I think, uh, I think I'm just, uh, you know, I was making a joke to somebody the other day. I said, wow, things are really picking up for me. I'm, I'm turning down way more work now than I was a year ago. <laughs> um, and I think, I think what's, what's up for me is, is really just to stay, is to stay the course and to, to not, not get, um, enticed or bullied into thinking that my musical value is contingent upon being on certain stages it 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 really has to do with you know how much my music starts to resemble the people that i that i admire Mm -hmm. um i've got a i've got a kid that's that we 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 
we put in 45 minutes to an hour of cello together every day. And that's, that's my job right now. I mean, that's, that's more important than me playing 45 minutes of scales on the clarinet right now. Um, you know, that's just for me personally. Uh, uh, and I think, I, I think remembering, you know, even if I have these, these, these high aspirations, I think always remembering how low the stakes are, uh, I think is, is, is kind of a key to keeping level about it. Um, I no longer overestimate the, um, this pressure to, for music to be this, you know, connecting force. Um, I'm realizing at this stage of my life that people are going to connect to whatever they want to connect to, as long as it's convenient for them to connect to it. Um, but there's really not very much I can do to move the needle on that. Um, um, I'm kind of getting away from this habit of overestimating, um, uh, you know, the, the 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 price tag on 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 what this is. It's uh, you know, I don't think sometimes I think I'm realizing that more often that doesn't reveal itself until way after the fact, you know, and I'm no longer feeling pressure to to create in a way that attempts to answer that <laughs> so i don't know i don't know what uh, it, that doesn't really answer your question i think i think um basically i'm just i guess my answer is i'm just i'm just i'm just back to kind of taking it slow and um and not trying to uh not trying to lose not trying to lose sight of what's important hmm. beautiful I'm sure that's the wrong. I'm sure that's like the wrong answer. <laughs> like people, this is about the music. This is Ain't the wrong yeah. answers on this exam. But you know what I think is, is really hip too is that you know you've you've done so you have so many credentials and accomplishments career wise that that you know people anyone would be very proud of, and it's just very interesting to to have a conversation with you at this season of life to see where you're at. And, uh, you know, it's all of this stuff is, you know, Ellis Marcella said, it's just a document, it's just a snapshot of the moment, a record. And I think all of these, you know, one of the things that Darren and I wanted to do in, in this is just, just taking a snapshot of where people are at at this moment. And, you know, maybe 15 years later, we, we're somewhere else, you know? Ellis, Ellis is a beautiful example, a beautiful role model for all of us in that way. Um, I remember an interview, very quickly, I just wanted to, I remember an interview where, where he discussed why he didn't go to New York. And his answer was very simple. Ah, because nobody offered me a gig there. <laughs> there that was the there answer. It was like, you know, everybody think, why didn't you go to New York? I mean, you could have been a big star or whatever, the, you know, whatever that means or whatever they thought they, whatever they thought. And Ellis, Ellis always had his eye on the prize. He always had his eye on the prize in terms of, in terms of his focus on his family in terms of his focus on his own personal aesthetic and the way he approached music. And he never, he never lost sight of that with this illusion of, you know, overestimating the currency of, of New York, for example, or overestimating the currency of things that he could have done in his career that would have taken away from that. And I, 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 I never, I never forgot that. I'll tell you one more quick anecdote. It was an interview with uh, uh, D one and, uh, and, um, um, and George Porter. Mm. 
And the question, the question they were asked was, what does longevity, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, I spoiled, I spoiled it, spoiled it. What, uh, what does success mean to you? And Dee was talking about, well, I just want to be able to make this music and be able to, you know, bring you know, money back home to the family. And I want my family to be proud of me. And he went on and on about all these things that success meant to him. And George Porter said, I already gave it away. George Porter said, success to me is longevity. Because mm-hmm. if you're not living to enjoy the benefits of what you've done, what's the point? Then you've, you know, you missed, you missed it. So I, I think. I think that's the last thing I'd like to leave, you know, you guys with is, um, you know, I think um, a focus on longevity is huge and, um, you know, not to be, not to be pressured or enticed by, you know, the cliches of what success means um, in this stupid business. I think those are the two things that I've, that I've, that I continually keep coming back to at this stage. And I love you both. I mean, it's so great to see you and talk to you both. And uh, yeah. we could, I could do this. I could do this all night, but I can't because my glass is empty. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Evan, um, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Evening. I mean, man, you you are just such a, a wealth of information, experience, and knowledge, and and just you know, on a personal note, thank you so much for everything you've done for me. Mm-hmm. Man, being a mentor and a clarinet idol, and man, you just thank you so much for everything, Evan. Greg, yeah, I love you. I love you, brother. Thank you, Evan. Man, it was it was a true true treat to have you on here after begging you for years. Thank you. I- oh, Darren, I just didn't think I, I just didn't think I had anything to say. But Darren, I appreciate the persistence, and I love what you guys are doing. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm very proud. Of, I'm very proud of both of you. Thank you. Man. We're proud thank of you. you. All right, y'all. My name is Darian Douglas. I'm Gregory Ajid. Y'all have a wonderful night. Later.